This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Temba Gamedze, and I am chairing this particular session uh, just to be sure the title is, Our Industry Claims Practices in the Underwritten Life Industry Just, Ethical, and Fair. It's my privilege to chair this session. Both Paul and Johan have quite a bit of industry experience. I won't go into detail into their CVs. And Johan was personally entangled in this case given his executive position in the insurer involved. But far more important uh, for me today is the fact that they're both involved in the normative skills development initiatives of the society. Paul in particular coordinates the professionalism workshops on behalf of ASA, with Johan joining him quite often, introducing our new-to-be fellows on some of the academic principles supporting ethical decision-making. They're not alone in this effort though, Francois Marais, for example, is also active in the ethics curriculum. In fact, a recent presentation by Emil Stipp on the issues facing the health industry introduced the profession to the fascinating topic of philosophy and ethics. So clearly the issue of ethics as a practical discipline has become an, an issue of common interest amongst many of our South African fellows. Long may it continue. So, without further ado, I'd like uh, to invite Johan to come to the stage and begin the presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Timba. Morning, everybody. Um, we really appreciate your time, effort, attending the session. Of course, it was um, set up just for you guys that you can claim some CPD points for professionalism, but that's another matter. Um, Paul and I, we were sort of giving each other flack about our attire this morning. I'm not a Donald Trump fan, even if it looks like that. I'm just so used to wearing a red tie and a white shirt on stage during the years. It's a bit of my happy place, and you'll see Paul has even put on a collared shirt this morning. So, you know, we're really trying to lift the game. Just by show of hands, who had an opportunity to read the paper? Oh, there are actually a few. All right, so I think just... Maybe not a word of caution, but we only touch on some of the themes in this presentation. You know, time doesn't allow us to cover everything. But if you haven't read the paper, and I think it's also good context and maybe a bit of a teaser you know, to actually go and read it a bit later on. Um, we've got quite a bit of ground to cover. Um, I will do most of the industry stuff, also present a specific claims case study, and also I will also take you into the classics, the classics of ethics. Uh, and then Paul will, in his usual flair, add a bit of an esoteric spin to the subject matter. I think you'll enjoy his session quite a lot. And then I'm back on stage, you know, talking to the role of actuaries as professionals and as business practitioners in this space, and also summarize some of our key takeouts. Um, just, I think, in the interest of being professional, a few caveats and acknowledgements. I mean, a few uh, 
experts helped us write this paper, specifically around the legal side and the financial advice side. Quite a few grey gentlemen in that regard. But also a special thanks to SCORE Africa for the global research on claims assessment practices. What you read in the paper actually comes from them. Um, please, you know, we got respect for the client's dignity and we will not share any intricate medical details. I think that's not the right thing to do. The stuff that we do, that we do connect with, obviously, you know, we're in the public domain, and we'll connect with that. And yes, we are writing this paper in our personal capacities. It doesn't reflect the views of our employers or of the Actuarial Society of Africa, and obviously that allowed us a bit more poetic freedom, you know, to call a spade a spade, and we'll do that during the presentation. So why did we write this paper? Yeah, it's not just to allow you guys to get some CPD points for professionalism. It's obviously to comment on industry practice, but I think the real intent is to sort of move into the ethics space and you know, introduce you guys to some classic ethical thinking. We comment on the role of actuaries as professionals and um, obviously maybe you know, apply a bit of a broader mindset around specific matter. So it is about professionalism at the end of the day. The case study, quickly to summarize the event, the client died in a violent crime event, um, unrelated to his cause of health. He was shot in his driveway, died in a hail of bullets, and his family also witnessed the event. Um, the, when the insurer uh, performed his claims assessment, it picked up that the client had some, uh, was suffering from severe medical conditions. On the underwriting questionnaire, for example, the client answered no to the question, have you or do you suffer from raised blood sugar? Um, uh, what I can say is that the client underwent a number of medical assessments prior to taking out the policy for raised blood sugar, the last one being two weeks before the inception of the contract. Um, the insurer declined the claim in full based on the premise that were they aware of the specific medical condition, they would not have issued the policy in the first place. So if the policy didn't exist, then the claim obviously can't be honored. The client went to the ombudsman twice. The ombudsman support the decision of the insurer. Also, I think the second time engaged with the independent reinsurer to evaluate the underwriting practice involved in this specific case. And that was the claim. The claim was repudiated on that basis. Obviously, as we know now, the whole world exploded after that massive, massive media storm, probably of the likes never seen before in South Africa, when we talk about claims in particular. And um, I can just share with you some very influential and well-respected South Africans tweeted on the outcome, some with followers, more than a million followers, some of them. Um, our PR department estimated that the number of potential impressions, you know, as the media story was ballooning, were hitting 70 million. So it's quite a hectic thing. Uh, staff abuse, I'll connect with that a little bit later. Threats of property discussion, political parties mobilizing their followers. It was an absolute mess. And I think in the end it was about, not about the claim actually at more. It actually, you know, went into a completely different space. In the end, the insurer decided to make an ex gratia payment to the deceased estate, also extended that offer to past and future victims of violent crime, 
where the claim was repudiated in full based on medical non-disclosure, and obviously the world were divided. There were some individuals and regulators and professionals who were very complimentary about the final outcome, but others remained skeptical. Uh, Paul, from an intellectual perspective, some definitely experienced a sense of uh, cognitive dissonance. I think that's a language Paul uses. He'll unpack that a little bit more. I think for the industry, as they say in Afrikaans, it's a bit of a no what no moment, you know, now what moment, and definitely we've seen some changes since then. And I think, um, obviously, the client and the client's family were happy, but we are left with this legacy, you know, of dealing with this issue. What's happening in South Africa? If most recently released CESA stats in August this year, reflecting on the 2018 calendar year outcomes. You can see on the slide that last year the industry paid 15 billion to lives or death benefits to underwritten lives. It's been steadily increasing over time. You can also see that the percentage of claims increased. The industry is paying 99,3% of all claims. So they only repudiate one out of every 150 claims. Now, from an actuarial perspective, I think you'll agree with me that's quite a decent outcome. And it also reflects the robust underwriting practices of the industry. The question, of course, is, is that good enough? And um, I think it's fair to say that there's definite distrust in the industry from a societal perspective. Um, if you look at surveys around the world, uh, looking or evaluating the trust levels in financial services, it's quite poor. But within financial services, insurers are often the lowest. So many clients do believe that insurers are looking for reasons not to pay claims. And when you repudiate a claim, when there's another media event, the conversation around the bri obviously you know, drifts into that space. So is it good enough? And I think that's what this case study you know, actually interrogates. Let's be fair, guys. Perception informs reality. And if you want to change reality, you need to do things slightly differently. From a global perspective, the takeout is definitely that claims do get repudiated elsewhere in the world. But what I found quite interesting is the sort of discussion around contestability. So in some jurisdictions, USA and others, you're actually limited as an insurer in your ability to contest a claim. So in some cases, you're only allowed to do that in the first two years, other places maybe in the first five years, although they do reserve the right often that uh, where the insurer can actually show deliberate and intentional fraud, you can actually go through a process. But there are definitely other sort of criteria also applied globally. I think the point is that both industry and regulators worldwide are sort of uh, working together to ensure that clients out there practically experience claims assessment practices, to be fair and just. I think that's the point. So all of this led to a number of questions. There's a plethora of questions in the document. I don't think we answered even half of them, Paul. Um, so there's still a lot of work to do for some other stakeholders or other research topics. But it did allow us to sort of almost structure our thesis and group those questions in a few, in a few sort of almost subgroupings and then tackle each one of them separately. I think the last four are the important ones. Are industry claims practices fair and just, legal? How well do we as insurers connect with our clients' expectations? Because clearly clients expect a claim to be paid. When a claim is not paid, they're clearly disappointed. How can we use moral philosophies in ethics to solve these dilemmas? And then finally, you know, how can product actuaries actually work together to promote a culture of trust you know, to address the issue? 
Now, all aware of the principle of acting in good faith, which is the cornerstone of, of insurance, basically. Uh, Francois yesterday spoke about the asymmetry of information. The client knows more about his or her health than the insurer. And hence, there is a disclosure responsibility on the client to be open and honest about their affairs. If not, obviously, we can claim misrepresentation. Either the sum assured gets reduced, the Ditcott principle, or in extreme cases, uh, the policy actually gets repudiated. A lot of questions arose around this, and many influential stakeholders actually asked us, but guys, is it reasonable? What can you expect clients to actually understand around matters of materiality? You know, specifically for the underwriting process, how often you know, does every client go through underwriting exercise? How should they know this? Um, there were questions asked even about the, the sort of sense of justice of our justice system in South Africa by very influential stakeholders. Many questions around these. And then obviously when you do work in a claims department and you do sort of suspect there's a level of misrepresentation, how open are you to maybe a, a different conversation? Do you really put clients' interests at heart when you go through those practices? So a lot of questions around the fundamental principle of acting in good faith. So Paul constructed a little model in the paper. Now it's easy to construct a model using extreme examples. I think the point is there's a real risk of financial ruin, specifically if you don't underwrite clients properly, specifically where they're in a very poor state of health, basically uninsurable. That's desired consequences. If you get the pricing right, you can still apply the Ditcott principle. You can't fix the pricing for a life that's completely uninsured. And that's what this model actually highlighted to us. There is a real financial issue that we need to be aware of in this space. But this brings me then to the classic theme of ethics. Now, up to now, I think most of you will agree with me. You'll be able to contribute quite nicely to the conversation and true to the actuarial gene DNA, have very strong views, whether you agree or disagree. I think when you walk into the world of um, ethics, rather the exciting world of moral philosophy, you know, I think things might change. And I think most of you study philosophy you know, as part of your curriculum. So what I'll do, I'm going to try and almost summarize a first-year course in five minutes. So in classic ethics, uh, classic ethics, uh, most, most disciplines, whether you study the discipline or the academic discipline of ethics from a, from a business school or, a, or a, a philosophical school or even a religious studies perspective, everybody will land these three basic uh, um, thinking frameworks, triadic thinking frameworks, three classic model philosophies, if you like, and then obviously interrogate an ethical conduct from those perspectives. So the first one is called duty-based ethics. The smart word for that is deontology. Deon means, means duty, obligation in ancient Greek. So here it's all about the rules. What, what are my obligations? Yeah, so, so it's really looking at contractual obligations, and that's on this basis that the claim obviously also was repudiated. It's about codes of conduct. Um, I think... Uh, the right action or the right ethical action, so maybe just stand back a minute. Ethics is actually not just about thinking, it's also about doing, and it's actually in the conduct that you address the specific ethical dilemma. So you use a thinking framework to solve for action. But the right action for a deontologist would be the action that you know, conforms to duty. And um, as you can see, this is also a little bit backward looking. So in solving the ethical problem, you're searching for those duties, obligations, rules that will help you, you know, on the right course of action. 
The middle one, it's got many different names, I just refer to that as consequentialism, uh, utilitarianism, it's another description for that. It's, it focuses more on the outcome. By design, it's more future-looking. And this is quite well entrenched in our business world. You know, we set sales targets, when deciding on new initiatives, you choose the one with the highest ROE, and maybe a great practical example of applying consequentialist ethics would be in a war, a war scenario. If the general needs to sacrifice a platoon, to save an army and to win the battle of the war, you might do that. Because in the end, you save more lives than actually what you lose. So this consequentialist sort of approach is all about maximizing the outcome with the least harm. And the aim of the consequentialist approach, therefore, is to actually produce the most net good. That's the kind of mindset you go to in this space. Then the one on the right, it's the oldest one, virtue ethics. Um, it is about values. It is about character. So the question you will ask there, what will this course of action say about my character? Uh, whether you're a business, culture grouping, maybe an individual also. So the aim of the virtue ethics approach actually is to develop character and to choose those virtues that define a good person. So the right ethical action, if you're a virtuist, would be to choose the action that you can say, well, this would be what a good person actually will do. Now you can see there are lots of tensions between these and they often don't talk to each other, in particular the consequentialist versus the other. So in ethics, some, some will actually just uh, position two broad groupings, the consequentialist and the non-consequentialist, and understand the tensions between them. Within them, there are also tensions. So what I found in practice, and looking at my colleagues around the table, I can actually, within, let's say, a week or two of working together, I know your natural stance. I think we've all got a natural stance. And without contributing to the debate, already know what you're going to say, because they know where you're coming from. Whether you are a rules-based person, whether you focus on outcomes, or whether you're actually somebody that's strongly value-driven, and that determines you know, your thinking. So, applying these to the case study at hand. Very simple. Let's start with the obvious one, the client space. Now, maybe before I go in, in, in this space, when you do ethical thinking, it's important to try and identify all your stakeholders. Because often we argue our case only from one stance, maybe the insurer's stance. The other stakeholders also involved, regulators, society, the industry, policyholders and so on, other policyholders. So identify your stakeholders clearly and then you apply your thinking strand accordingly. Also, well articulated in our general discipline is to get all the facts. Clearly, if you've got all the facts, you can make a proper decision. I think looking at the specific case study, what we didn't do as an insurer, because we decided not to position the client's uh, health status out there in the media space to respect his dignity, that did put us a little bit on the back foot, you know, in terms of the factual arguments, but that was just a, a decision we made. So clearly, from a deontological perspective, duty-based perspective, the client has an obligation to act in good faith when you take out an insurance contract. If you do not do so, there are consequences. In this case, the claim was actually repudiated. Consequential argument is there's no financial payment, so your family suffers loss. But the important and the most difficult one, I think, is when you go into the virtue level. If it's known that I'm misrepresented and therefore I couldn't uh, care for my family, what does it say about my character as a person? What does it say about my legacy, my virtues? And that's a very difficult one, I think, for the family and the beneficiaries to actually entertain. They almost can't go there. And with any claims to repudiation decision, I appreciate the fact that that's quite a sensitive issue. So I'm just going to mention a few, I'm not going to do all of them. 
uh, entertaining the conversation from the other policyholders' perspective was quite important to us. Clearly, if you admit claims, that's not valid. Pre, um, your risk experience will worsen. This will lead to an increase in future premiums. The existing policyholders will have to start more. If they can't afford it, they'll have to reduce their cover, and actually then you, they can't meet their specific benefit expectations. I don't think media often appreciate the fact that the other policyholders are actually quite an important stakeholder also. I think what was interesting for us from the virtue perspective is we had two different sets of comments. We had clients phoning us and saying, guys, if you pay this claim, you're condoning corruption. And corruption is also quite a sensitive issue in South Africa. We had others phoning us and listen, we want you to pay the claim. It shows you cares. It shows you've got a heart for your clients. And I want to be with an insurer that actually cares. So we actually had different, different uh, sort of viewpoints from this perspective. Just from the insurer in the industry, just want to focus on staff. And this was my, something that shocked me the most. Our staff were abused severely. I call center agents, and those of you that know call center agents, these are special people, been in the business for 20 years, in tears, couldn't handle it. People phone, not clients necessarily, just general public phoning in and just let go. I wanted to get a recording, and I thought maybe that's not the right thing to do. You, you cannot believe the dark side of human nature that popped out there. There was a hatred, there was an undertone. So there's something, but listen to this, there's something in the South African society that triggers when crime actually happens. That's also quite an important societal trigger. And in the end, I was convinced that they would be physically abused as well, not just mentally abused. From the regulatory perspective, the regulator actually didn't intervene in this specific uh, instance. The Ombud, as you know, positioned the thinking framework. If you want a good document, read a good two-pager. In the Ombud report of 2018, there are two pages in the middle giving you a good background of how things work. It's actually a very useful read. I think the Ombud did a great job to position his thinking also in that regard. But in the end, I think the regulators were comfortable. Um, I think uh, they wanted us effectively to pay the claim. Um, and then the interesting one, the societal argument, um, again, very mixed. As I've just said, as policyholders were mixed, society was also mixed. If you look at the tweets and the social media responses, now I think obviously those that were more upset about not, the claim not being played were a bit more outspoken, but only between 1 and 5% of the social media responses wanted the claim not to be paid. It makes sense what I'm saying. Everybody wanted the claim to be paid. So my sense is there's a trigger in society a lot stronger than just corruption. And it's empathy for victims of violent crime. And our PR department actually did some research afterwards and could actually show us that the trigger for violent crime, specifically where there are innocent victims involved, are a lot higher than just corruption. It's almost as if society was telling us, listen, crime trumps corruption and you guys need to catch a wake-up. In the end, the business decided to pay the claim, whoa, made an ex gratia payment to the deceased estate. So, did the insurer legally pay the claim? It did not. So by making an ex gratia payment from a deontological perspective, it's from a legal technical side, it did not pay the claim. It made a payment to the deceased estate. So in doing that, the view was that it didn't compromise the current judicial framework, it didn't compromise the decision of the ombudsman, and from that perspective also didn't compromise current industry practice. That's just one point to note. From an existing policyholder perspective, it was well articulated that this will not impact their future premiums. This was not just an emotional exercise. They actually did do proper sums, 
Okay, just like did do proper sums. Yes, there was a cost involved, but it won't break the bank. So the insurer will remain solvent and the existing policy holders would not be affected. I think from the insurer perspective itself, it could show the market that it's got a heart, you know, that we do care about our clients from that perspective. I think the regulator was satisfied with the outcome, but there's still this almost battle, I think, between the prudential authority that focuses more on solvency, I suppose, and the financial conduct authority that focuses more on client expectations. I think there's a bit of a natural tension between those two worlds, but the regulator definitely was happy. Society, by and large, you know, were also happy. And then the insurer did an interesting thing. It introduced another set of stakeholders. It stretched the fairness factor to other victims of violent crime that historically claims were declined, as well as future victims of violent crime where claims get repudiated in full as a result of medical um, uh, misrepresentation and extended the benefit to them as well. We went back in its books. I think the oldest claim we paid was about 20 years ago that we could figure out where a claim was, sort of was repudiated um, as a result you know, of a violent crime event. This does not mean, however, that the world is still confused. There's still a polarization of views around this thing, but that's actually what made this case study so exciting to almost tackle you know, as part of an ethics story. Paul, over to you. Thanks, Johan. Um, I have been involved in some of this ethical thinking, mainly by sitting and listening to the other presenters on the professionalism course, but I never studied it. And I, I discovered this video, which for me best shows um, the difference between the three different ways of thinking. So this is a video I often show at one of my professionalism courses. Virtue, Virtue ethics. ethics. Virtue, Virtue ethics, ethics is a philosophy, is a philosophy developed, developed by Aristotle, by Aristotle and, other and other ancient Greeks. Greeks. It is the quest, is the quest to, understand to understand and live a life of moral character. This character-based approach to morality assumes that we acquire virtue through practice. By practicing being honest, brave, just, generous, and so on, a person develops an honorable and moral character. According to Aristotle, by honing virtuous habits, people will likely make the right choice when faced with ethical challenges. To illustrate the difference among three key moral philosophies, ethicists Mark White and Robert Arp refer to the film The Dark Knight, where Batman has the opportunity to kill the Joker. Utilitarians, White and Arp suggest, would endorse killing the Joker. By taking this one life, Batman could save multitudes. Deontologists, on the other hand, would reject killing the Joker simply because it's wrong to kill. But a virtue ethicist would highlight the character of the person who kills the Joker. Does Batman want to be the kind of person who takes his enemies' lives? No. In fact, he doesn't. So, virtue ethics helps us understand what it means to be a virtuous human being. And it gives us a guide for living life without giving us specific rules for resolving ethical dilemmas. So, I think it is a very good explanation, but I just wanted to show Batman at the convention. And, and yes, I still do own the Batman sheets that I had when I was a kid. So about a year ago, I was driving from my home in Rondebosch out to Belleville, and I was listening to the radio, 567, which is very unusual for me because I never listen to the radio, I hate the radio. 
Uh, I normally listen to podcasts when I'm in the car. And I just caught the, the tail end of a conversation that was going on. And, and I think the talk show host was Eusebius McKaiser. And I heard him comparing these two executives to the worst politicians in the state capture investigation. And then I started to listen to a bit more, and I, I didn't hear the original interviews that these executives gave on the radio, but I happened to know both of the executives. Um, one of them I took over the professionalism course from, and the other one runs the professionalism course with me. Now, I spent 17 years in life reinsurance, and for all of that time, I had the claims team either directly reporting to me or they were in my sphere of influence. So I spent a lot of time looking at claims, and by definition, these were typically the controversial claims. And what would happen more often than not is we as a reinsurer would be pushing back on the insurance company. They would want to pay the claim, and we would say, but you don't have to. There's, there's been non-disclosure. But they really wanted to pay the claim. So as I'm driving, I'm getting this, this massive sense of cognitive dissonance. Now, to be clear, I, I would never want to paint the insurance industry in the top right. I think there are a number of things in the life space that we do wrong, a lot of things that, um, that really frustrated me, and luckily I don't have to deal with in my, in my new life. But certainly I didn't think that the, the example on the bottom left was correct. So when Johan approached me about a year ago and said he thought it would be a good idea to write a paper about this from a professional perspective, I jumped at the opportunity. So we've written the paper, and I think 16 of you have read it in the room. Hopefully after the presentation, more of you will read it. And I'm very happy with the paper. I think we did a really good job. We tried to cover it from all the angles. Um, we tried to be objective, but the people reading the paper and you people in the room will be the ultimate test of that. But after writing the paper, I still feel really itchy. There's something doesn't feel quite right. And um, so Jan and I are different. I know that there's 64 questions because I counted the question marks in the paper. And there certainly weren't 64 answers. So there, there's a lot that is still outstanding. So what I'm hoping to do is to use this presentation as a, as a bit more group therapy, a bit more of an opportunity to let me scratch my itch a bit more and, and see if, if I can get anywhere. So Malcolm Gladwell is a journalist, and he's an author, and he's a podcaster. I've actually used one of Malcolm Gladwell's models at a previous convention when I was looking at trying to construct life mortality tables in South Africa, which is very frustrating, and he's got a model about the differences between mysteries and puzzles. But to a certain extent, I fell out of love with Malcolm Gladwell, because the problem is he doesn't always let um, the truth get in the way of a good story. But boy, does he tell a good story. So his most recent podcast series is called Revisionist History, where he looks at things misunderstood and overlooked. And he's now in season four. And in episodes five, six, and seven of this, he did a whole series um, on descending into the particular. And when I listened to these podcasts, and I've now listened to them several times each, they really started to resonate with me about some of the issues that I was dealing with when looking at this case. So Gladwell uses um, three examples, which I'm going to go through. I, say, I haven't checked these facts, so I'm assuming that everything he said is true, so that's my one disclaimer. But he uses the three examples of um, sports doping in baseball, um, the birth of the contraceptive pill, and police violence in America. But as Gladwell does, I first need to start by taking you 500 years back into history, to the founding of the Order of the Jesuits by St. Ignatius of Loyola. So the Jesuits were the Catholic Church's intellectuals, 
They were his diplomats, diplomats. They were his businessmen. And they were sent off to many foreign lands, and when they went there, they came up with these novel problems. So now when you're sitting in the Amazon jungle, and you come up with a novel problem, you can't email head office and say, well, what do I do? So the Jesuits came up with a, a way of dealing with novel problems of thinking about it, which they called casuistry. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that's what they call it. And in, the, in this thinking, there are three key parts of the framework. So the first is the one of disordered attachments. And that's another way of saying that you should try and approach any problem without any bias. It doesn't help you to approach a problem if you think you know the answer already. The second one is this um, idea of sometimes principles are not that useful and you need to descend into the particular. So an example is in the Catholic church, church it's wrong to lie. If you're a Catholic priest in England a few hundred years ago and you tell them you're Catholic, you get burnt at the stake. Okay, it's not always helpful to rely on your principles in that situation. And then the, th the third part is the, this concept of a standard case. So if we come across something and it's, it's new and we're not quite sure how to solve it, maybe it's useful to find a couple of standard cases and see, well, is it closer to A or is it closer to B? So just to give you a taste of how this framework works, um, I'm going to use an example which is entirely appropriate in this room, and that's the example of insurance. So for many, many years, centuries, the Catholics had banned usury. So what usury is, it's making money out of money. But then what happened is you ended up having an extremely successful maritime trade. And people were shipping vast values of cargo from point A to point B. If the ship went down, that was a catastrophe. So some bright spark, probably in a coffee shop in London somewhere, came up with this concept of insurance. But insurance is usury. You aren't allowed to do it. It's banned. So the Jesuits got together and said, well, let, let's have a look at this. I mean, what are the standard cases here? So the first standard case is usury or a loan shark. So the problem with usury is very wealthy people were using their money to exploit poor people and make more money. So we all agree that's wrong. But on a ship, you have a captain. And what is the purpose of a captain? The purpose of a captain is to get the ship from A to B. What's the purpose of insurance? It's to get the value of the cargo from A to B. So isn't insurance a bit more like a captain? We all think captains are good. Now, the Jesuits, I think, have been accused of just being clever people and using semantics to get around arguments, and I do see that a bit, but I think this is a very good example of a standard case, and luckily, because they won that case, many of us have jobs today. So, let's go into the three actual case studies. The first is sports doping in baseball. So there was a lot of drug use in baseball. It became a national outcry. There was a congressional hearing, and one of the people to get caught up in this whole thing was a guy called Andy Pettity, who was a pitcher, um, and he was having a problem with tendonitis in his elbow, so he injected growth hormones to try and fix that problem. So he got caught. Massive public outcry, he was on national television, he had to apologize to everyone. Um, but Malcolm Gladwell says when you listen to his apology, it, it seems quite odd, because it's almost like he doesn't feel like he should be apologizing, and he's not quite sure what, it, what he's apologizing for. So then we look at a couple of standard cases. The first one is Tommy John. So Tommy John was also a pitcher. He had a problem with a ligament in his elbow, and some bright orthopedic surgeon said, well, we're going to try a new surgery. We're going to take a tendon from your forearm, and we're going to put it into your elbow. It's extremely risky. We get it wrong. You're going to end up with a, a hand that's a claw. But he tried it, and it was successful. Um, 
It's, since, it's been so successful, it's been done about 500 times now in the professional leagues, as well as many other times in the amateur leagues. It's even now known as Tommy John surgery. Quite importantly, um, Tommy John's stats did not change before and after the surgery. So as a sportsman, he, his stats were fairly similar. We then go to the case of Barry Bonds. So Barry Bonds was an extremely good batter. And quite late in his career, he started taking growth hormones. So his chest size increased from 106 to 132 centimeters. His head grew. His head literally grew. And I use the term literally like it's meant to be used, not like my daughters who say, Dad, if you pick me up from the cinema in your slippers and a vest, I will literally die. Um, to which I say, my darling, you will die, but it won't be from embarrassment. So, and the key thing here is with Barry Bonds is that he went from a 35 to 40 home run season to 70 home run season. So his was transformative as opposed to Tommy John who was restorative. So I think this is a, it's a great example of a standard case because I think Andy Pettity falls very much into the Tommy John. So what is the difference between a scalpel and an injection? There's not much. So I think perhaps he was right by wondering why everyone was, was maligning him in this situation. So the second example is the birth of the contraceptive pill. So I came across um, this guy who is an absolutely amazing individual. So this is Dr. John Rock. So he was a, an American doctor in, in the 1930s, so sort of in the Depression era. And he wanted to be a fertility doctor. He wanted to help women who couldn't have children have children. He then started working in the very poor Irish tenements in Boston, and he saw the real impact on these poor women who were having three, four, five, six children. So by some sort of unfortunate quirk of fate, he ended up then inventing the contraceptive pill, so one of the most significant forms of medicine in the world. But by another horrible sense of irony, Dr. Rock was a Catholic. Um, and he was an extremely devout Catholic. Um, and he didn't want to go against what his church had said. And in 1930, Pope Pius XI had made it very, very clear that if the act is, is deliberately frustrated in its natural power to generate life, this is an offense against God and it's a grave sin. So now Dr. Rock is sitting here with a bit of a dilemma. And what he tried to do is he tried to get the Pope or the church to change their mind. So they got together a commission of 72 individuals. They were medical specialists and theologians. They debated this, and they voted 68 to 4 to allow the oral contraceptive. Okay, then stayed with Pope John Paul for a couple of years, um, and then he said, no, I cannot overturn this previous um, casty Kanubi circular. So now this, the, the question is, I mean, is there a standard case here? So a bit like Dr. Jo um, Dr. Rock in the, in the tenements, um, the Pope, after World War II, was visiting a group of midwives, and he could see what was happening in post-war Italy, that these women were having many, many babies, and it was having a significant impact on their lives. So he approved um, the rhythm method as a form of contraception. So now we have the two standard cases. On the one hand, you have barrier methods, so you have condoms and you have diaphragms. The church says it's definitely not allowed. On the other hand, you have the rhythm method, which the church says, well, that's fine. So where does the pulse it? It's not a barrier method. Um, can you argue that it is actually there to enhance a woman's chance of becoming pregnant because it extends the chances? Once again, you may argue that, that the Jesuits, if they were arguing that well, are, are using clever words. So, so this is a bit more of a, of a gray area. And I think the problem here is that the people take 
very extreme views and people have um, opinions about what should or shouldn't be allowed. So then I go to the, the last case study, and I'm here, the last example, and there, there are two case studies here. So the first one is the case of Michael Brown in Ferguson County. So police officer Darren Wilson is on patrol. He hears about a, a black teenage youth who's broken into a convenience store and sold some, stole some cigars. He sees Michael Brown walking down the road. 90 seconds later, Michael Brown is dead. This led to massive riots in Ferguson County. The police were brought in, militarized vehicles, militarized weapons. And what happened, as so often happens in these situations, is that the response was completely bimodal. So if you are on the side that the police were really violent, you assume that Michael Brown had done nothing wrong. If you were on the side that actually we need to worry about law and order, you were immediately on the side of Darren Wilson, who was a police officer. So the Department of Justice in America has a civil rights division. And they spent about six months looking into the particular case, and they came up with two reports, which they released on the, on the same day. Now, the first report said that, actually, we don't find enough ed evidence um, to say that Darren Wilson used excessive violence, and therefore we are not able to indict him. The second report that came out is what is known as a patterns and practices investigation. And what they discovered through this process, and they've now discovered in many other towns in America, is that the whole police force, and in fact the whole justice system, was set up to extract wealth from the community. And it was particularly focused on trying to extract wealth from the poor African-American community. So what would happen is that, for example, judges who were incompetent were protected if they happened to be particularly good at doling out fines, at one stage, you had the finance director of the police determining what, what the strategy for the police would, should be. So how many cars there should be, where they should go. And all of this was in aid of trying to extract wealth from the community. Now, unfortunately, with these two reports, people didn't read both of them. Or if they did, the one that they didn't like, they said, oh, well, that one's biased. But the reports were written by the same department. And here, another key thinking framework or a thought is that in this situation, perhaps everyone is wrong. So the people who thought that Michael Brown was innocent, they were wrong because he didn't just put up his hands. At one stage, they, he was actually reaching into the car to try and get the police officer's gun. And the people said, well, Michael Brown is wrong because um, he didn't respect the legitimacy of the police force. Well, they were wrong because the police force in Ferguson County weren't legitimate. So then we come to... A second case. So this is my last example. And this one it comes eerily close to the claim that set off the decision for Johanna and I to write this paper. So Angel Navarro was a young Mexican-American. Um, he was shot and killed outside Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was shot 27 times by three policemen. So we are first introduced to the story um, through the eyes of Philippe. So Philippe is his brother. Philippe gets told that his brother's dead. Okay. For 48 hours, he doesn't know how his brother died. He's just in the dark. Eventually it comes out, no, your brother, your brother was um, shot by police. He was shot 27 times. And he tries to get more and more information. And, and the, the police force sort of keep pushing back. So look, it's still under investigation. It's still under investigation. And this must be not unlike it 
what it must feel like for a beneficiary who's trying to get their claim paid to keep getting told, actually, just wait, it's under investigation, under investigation. So then we come to another very interesting character in the story who is Dr. Ron Martinelli. So Dr. Ron is a policeman, he's, he's a forensic specialist. He's the person who spends hours and hours and hours going through these police videos, because a lot of them are captured on video and a lot of them are made public. And he tries to unpack what happened in these police shootings. And quite importantly, he acts sometimes for the defense and he acts sometimes for the prosecution. Now, the video of Angel's death is not public, so all you do is you hear Dr. Ron and Malcolm Gladwell sort of dissecting what's going on. And, and this is what happened. So Angel Navarro drops his girlfriend off. He then goes into a parking lot and he robs a guy of his car. And in the process, he, he slices the guy with a knife. He then f um, flees the scene, driving fast, but not too fast, five kilometers over the speed limit. He stops. The police catch up. He speeds away again for another 10 miles. More policemen come. The helicopter's there. Eventually, he stops again. He gets on the phone to the police and says, look, I'm a bad dude. Stay away. I've got a gun. He then gets out of the car and does everything that one should not do. So he doesn't put his hands up. He puts his hands to his waist, which is where most guns are kept. He walks aggressively towards the police. They shoot him. He falls down, but he's not dead. He's actually still alive. He then tries to get up again, once again goes for his, his gun, and then they shoot him dead. So the way that Dr. Ron tells it is that, in his opinion, what he thinks this is, it's a classic case of SPC, SBC, suicide by cop. And they think that up to 10% of police shootings in America are suicide by cop. But then what happens is you start, you listen to them watching the video right till the end. And what happens is one of the policemen goes up to the body, they've got to check the trunk of the car, make sure it's empty. They go down and of course there's no gun, there's only a cell phone. And then you, they just, just describe how the policeman is walking in and out of the camera shot. He's walking in and out. And then he leans against his car and sort of the scene ends with him sitting against his car in tears. So I think in this situation there were actually there were three victims. The first victim is clearly Angel. So what must be going through one's mind where, where your only solution in life is to orchestrate a suicide by cop? The second victims in the story are Philippe and his family. So they went through two years of legal hell, trying to understand what was going on, fighting with the police, um, and they never actually won the case in the end. And what is almost worse is that through this process, they discovered that their brother and their son was not who they thought they were. He had been seen a therapist, um, he was suicidal, but he didn't feel that he could he could speak to his parents. But then the, the, the third victim, who I don't think any of us would necessarily intuitively think about, is, is this policeman. So the policeman didn't wake up that morning hoping that they would shoot someone. And although the policeman had, there were no legal ramifications, the case was, was fairly clear-cut, that, that person's life was changed forever. And I think this is another good example. If you, if you take a principle that all police shootings are wrong, and you don't dive into the particulars, there's a good chance that we're all going to get it wrong. So, back to the case at hand and my concluding comments. St. Ignatius said that we should try and approach problems, particularly novel problems, with a sense of disordered attachment. But unfortunately, I find this very difficult to do in this situation. And the one reason is because of my experience in, in the life insurance world and what I saw happening on the ground. But the second reason is because when I started getting more information 
For me, it was fairly clear in my mind that the claim should have been declined. So applying my fairly recently applied triadic ethical thinking model, I would have declined the claim on a deontological point of view. The, the rules say the claim should not be paid, we should have declined it. I would have declined the claim on a consequences point of view, because I think the impact on other policyholders and on the insurance system as a whole was more significant than the impact on the one policyholder. And then I also would have declined the claim on a virtue ethics, because I think as actuaries and as people involved in the industry, we needed to stand up and say, I know it's a tough decision, but we can see the, whole, the big picture, um, and it's actually correct that we should be declining the claim. So I've really struggled to come up with a, a standard case, or standard cases for this claim, but the, the concept of descending into the particulars has been extremely useful, um, as is the concept of a novel problem. But it took me quite a long time to realize that the novel problem in this case wasn't whether the claim was declined or paid. The novel problem here was the, um, the public's reaction to the declined claim. And the fact that in the end, what seemed to happen is that emotion won the day. Emotion made the decision. And it's one of my first experiences of this post-truth world. Um, and certainly in an area where I feel I've got a, a lot of expertise. And I think that's what's left me feeling so emotional and, and uncomfortable about this case. So um, I am someone who believes beyond almost everything else that, that the truth is important and that the truth matters. So the reality is that even after this therapy session, I'm still feeling itchy. I, I still feel a bit uncomfortable with everything. But I do have um, three takeouts which I will leave you with. So the first one is that I think actuaries need to stand up and be counted. Um, in this situation, we should have declined the claim. But it's really hard for one person to do. So all actuaries should have done it, plus the industry, plus the CESA. It wasn't a valid claim. And it's very hard to do these things when you do them by yourself. So the, the second um, conclusion is, and this is going back to Angel Navarro and Michael Brown, is that in this situation, perhaps everyone is wrong. So I think the public are wrong if they think we can just pay these claims and it won't have any consequences on the insurance industry because it will. And I think the industry is wrong, not by choosing to pay or decline these claims, but by not spending significantly more time trying to make our products simpler and more understandable and emphasizing over and over and over again to everyone involved in the insurance life cycle that without trust, we are never going to win battles like this. And my last conclusion is that actuaries once again need to stand up and lead. So in the Malcolm Gladwell um, narrative, I think that we have two roles to play. As individuals, I think that we are Dr. Ron Martinelli. We have an unbelievable technical background. We have a very good ethical base. I think we are extremely good at descending into the particulars and trying to find out what's really going on to make a good decision. And I think actuaries and claims people do do that. Um, but I think the other role we have to play as professionals and the profession is we are the civil rights um, department of the Department of Justice. We are the people and the group who understand enough about how the system works. I think we really need to interrogate the products that we sell. I think we need to come up with solutions. And I think we need to clearly communicate those to all people involved. We need to, to change the system 
from one that makes it difficult for good people to do good things to one that makes it easy for good people to do good things. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Now you can see why we had so much fun writing this paper. Um, we had some very interesting dialogues. Um, and Paul, thank you also for your contribution. Um, moving into the end, we've got a few concepts still to land, and then I'll just wrap up. Um, maybe it sounds like it's a bit left field, but I think you'll understand by now, a big chunk of this conversation is around client expectations, how things should work, and how well we do manage our clients' expectations. Now, this is a little bit of a personal bugbear of mine. You know, I read a specific individual's work, an uh, individual called Nikolaus Wolterstorff. He's also quoted in the bibliography quite well. He writes a lot about rights and issues around justice. And an interesting thesis, and it, I almost sort of could use it also quite well in, in other parts of the business. And it's obviously all aware there's some premium reviews going on in the industry currently on specifically legacy risk products, but also some new generation ones. And, you know, what's the right thing to do? Uh, what's your obligation? What's the client's expectation? How do you balance the book, so to speak? But in his thesis, and I actually support his views, there's a big difference in not meeting someone's expectations versus not meeting your contractual obligations. So I think you'll all agree that if I need to honor some contractual obligation and I don't do it, the party on the other side can rightly feel offended. They can rightly feel wronged. They can ask for some form of retribution, corrective action. They can go to court. But what happens if I don't meet your expectations? Do you have some form of recourse? Because clearly you're disappointed. You might even be angry. Do you have other remedies? What can you claim? So in our industry, of course, the role of the market conduct regulator in particular is to look at client expectations. And now, well, we live, as an industry, we live up to meeting our clients' expectations. What remedies will the market conduct regulator impose on you versus just looking at you know, contractual obligations? And clearly, in the world of claims assessment, we often start our conversation from the contractual obligation perspective. So two practical examples. Call center agent. Client phones in, wants to know his surrender value. Call center quotes, let's say, 100,000 rand. Call center made a mistake. The actual value is 80,000. Goes back the next day, sorry sir, we made a mistake. Here's your proper policy statement that underlying value is actually 80,000, is not 100,000, the number I quoted you yesterday. Should the company honor the 100,000? Most companies would not. They say we made an honest mistake, there's no poor intent from our part, but we created the wrong imp impression. We created an expectation, there's a 100,000 payment due. Some clients, believe me, will insist and make your life very difficult, insist on a 100,000 payment. Maybe a more interesting example, a teenage daughter wants to go to a party and uh, obviously have a bit of a battle with her mum and say, no, listen, eventually they agree you can go to the party, but you need to be back midnight. And her daughter says, yes, mum, I promise you, I will be back midnight. So guess what happened? <laughs> Two o'clock, the door opens and in comes a daughter. You can see this movie playing out in this specific instance. Was a daughter right to not be home at night? Well, some people believe that promise-making got the same level of uh, commitment as obligation. So from that perspective, the daughter was actually not wrong being home at midnight. A mother can feel wrong and actually do some or impose some disciplinary action on her. However, if her daughter was late because of some traffic accident, was it a fault? No. And you can understand the difference. So that brings me to sort of our real world. 
the regulator, the market conduct regulator in particular, is looking at the six you know, TCF outcomes. If we don't meet those outcomes, there could be some sanction. So what I want to land with you today is just a thought, just a thought to ponder on. And it's going to be interesting to see how this journey will unfold in the next five to ten years. So because you all agree that the language of obligation, reading from the slide, does create strong client entitlements, like a premium guarantee that you bed in a risk product, for example. And they can hold you to task. They can, they can demand corrective action. But the language of expectation we normally perceive to be less onerous, clearly. And clients obviously um, cannot always you know, ask for the same redress than in the case of not meeting obligations. Will the market conduct regulator ever change this reality? So what I want to leave with you today is be careful in how you manage client expectations. Make very sure you understand your internal language of promise-making obligation within an organization when you deal with clients. This is very important for protection products because clearly a risk product is all about the claim's promise. A risk product performs when the claim is paid. Watch this space. So to the valuation actuaries in the room, you know, if the boundaries keep blurring between expectation and obligation, you might find yourself under-reserved in terms of future claims payments. Interesting food, for a sort of something to ponder on. But let's get back to the actuarial profession. Paul also mentioned that quite eloquently in his presentation. Um, in the professionalism course, I don't want to give it away to the new fellows that must still go through the professional course, Paul's got a very interesting word game where he try and sort of get a sense from the young or the to-be fellows, you know, what professionalism is all about. And they can sort of land a few words. What this lesson, what this case study exposed once again is the great distrust that exists in society looking at insurance companies. As a general statement, as a general statement. I also made this point a little bit earlier. And we need to close the gap. Now, from a personal perspective, my journey during the years, um, I think, I believe, and I'm sure there's research also backing this up, that there are three important ingredients to building trust as a professional. And I'm going to use the great example of the medical profession, you know, once again. Clearly, we all agree that competence is quite an important ingredient to building trust. Will you go for surgery to a medical practitioner that doesn't know how to handle a scalpel? I think you'll be very concerned about that, I think. So there's a certain underlying technical expertise that we expect from professionals. The second one, which I think the last few years have become quite visible, is the question of character. So you would like to go to a doctor that's quite well-trained and knows how to do surgery. Let's say that some medical practitioner um, has got a gambling problem, and it's got three serious sexual harassment claims against him. Would you still do business with that doctor? Who wouldn't? Oh, you guys are quite open. Oh, there's a few hands popping up. We've seen, looking at the reputational risk of professional consulting and auditing firms lately, how important character is. So society is making judgments on character. And for professionalism, this is quite an important thing. The third one, however, I think is not well appreciated. It's a theme of connectedness. Um, speaking to many uh, sort of individuals around the braai, if they don't like the doctor's bedside manners, they actually will do business with another one. They want to experience that connectedness. So this introduces a relational dimension into the conversation of trust. If you can't relate to someone, if you can't connect with them, why will you trust them? So 
If clients don't understand, Paul, your point, how our industry work, if the products and our processes are too complex, if they don't understand why we simply decline a claim, I'm not in the judicial side now, when a client dies in a hail of bullets, how can you expect them to trust them? So the theme of connectedness is something we really need to work on as a profession. So superimposing on that, our own code of conduct, that I know everybody in the room reads at least three times a year, you know, around professionalism. So this is where you can claim CPD points. It stands on three pillars. First one, knowledge and expertise. That links with competence. The second one, ethical behavior. Specifically, integrity and honesty. That's well articulated in the code. And the third one relates to professional accountability. To the profession, but also to the society. So how can you discharge your obligation, your accountability obligation to society if you cannot connect with their expectations, their needs, understand how they think about how life works? And I think that's maybe the important message around connectedness. So life actuaries as leaders in the industry, either in the product space or often also executives, we need to think about ways to reduce the experience of complexity and uncertainty from our clients in doing business with us. So what are our key insights? This is the last slide. Um, we do believe, following this exercise, looking at the emotions all around the claim, that life insurance is a necessary good for society. The 15 billion just unwritten life claims prove the point. Again, just the profound awareness of how little clients out there society understands the workings of the, or the inner workings of the insurance industry. We need to close this gap. From a personal perspective, there is no way you can have an ethical dialogue on any media platform. Don't even try and do that. It's not the audience. It's not the place to do that. It's a, you need a different forum for that. Many stakeholders in every complex conversation. Complexity and expectation management. My point about expectation management is quite Quite, quite a relevant one. So the way forward, I think for me, if you excuse the pun, you know, life is not just about judicial fairness. There are many other things one also needs to consider. What we can take from the discipline of ethics, uh, ethics is about thinking as well as doing. So in doing claims assessment, we need to think about various issues, be it the contractual obligations, be it stakeholder needs, be it consequences, be it you know, values of the firm, for example. But we also need to critically reflect on how we actually do claims assessment, how we do things in practice. And um, if I can maybe be a little bit naughty here, maybe to the audience in the room, you all read the business day, probably. Most of you read the financial mail. Some of you might read the cover magazine. I'm all right. Do you think all your clients read the business day? The financial mail, the cover magazine, they live in a different world. It's around the bright place fire where they actually communicate and experience and share their views. So their perceptions are maybe quite different than our perceptions about how things work. So lesson I've learned in life, that perception is reality. And if you want to change perception, you need to change the way you do things. Now maybe, I have, do I have, oh, three minutes, three minutes, three minutes. A little personal lesson. Uh, my first employer, I think the year was 1992, uh, just qualified. That's why I remember the date. So there was a big thing in the industry uh, uh, around how bundled universal life products work. The whole thing about fund build-up, investment returns, risk premiums to pay for your risk and you know, risk premiums for expenses. And I was tasked to 
fly up, I was in Cape Town then, fly up to Klerksdorp to meet financial advisors. It's my first ever exposure to this specimen called financial advisor. So we did our thing. We flew up to, those days not Otambo, Johannesburg International, I think, and drove to Klerksdorp, and there was around 300, 400, 300 financial advisors in the room. I was obviously a youngster. They were all gray in their 50s and stuff like that. And we did our thing. Overhead projector, nice lights, and tell the story. So eventually the one guy put up his hand, elderly gentleman, and said, Putman. He said, yeah, well, yes, sir. You know, I was, he was double my age. You need to show some respect. I can see you know your stuff, all right? But don't ask me just to trust you. Show me, please, that how this thing works. And that was a lesson. So I think what I take from that, from a consumer perspective, we can't just, as actuaries and industry, ask our clients out there just to trust us. We need to show them, and we can only show them by connecting better and obviously doing claims assessment in a certain way. So maybe where I am, I don't know, there might be room in the industry for some contestability criteria, like they do elsewhere in the world, applying that to you know, our claims assessment practices. That's something for the industry to debate. It does have some downsides as well, but you know, at least you can show the world out there as an industry that you're serious about paying claims when you do those kind of things. But what I do know, for this industry, obviously, to remain relevant, we need to take seriously our duty of care, looking at clients. If you add to that managing client expectations better and also, Paul, understand the sort of empathy hierarchy of our clients' needs, the point I made about big crime almost, uh, victim of violent crime almost trumping, you know, fears around, you know, misrepresentation and corruption, I think we'll do a lot better as an industry. So maybe the time has come to reflect on maybe even changing in our current industry paradigm. Thank you. Demba. Thank you uh, very much there. Sure, we've been through from the Greeks um, to 21st century South Africa. That was great. Um, now, this is rather a big room, so it's probably quite difficult to, to really have a conversation, but I'm going to try. Um, if anybody's got maybe a comment or a question, um, there's one here at the back. Maybe we could take two, and there's one halfway there, just to see how it goes, uh, because obviously this is a big topic and we as a profession need to engage with it. It's not the kind of topic you listen to at a, at a talk and then move on. So I am hoping that uh, workshops will be put together um, to address this issue further. But let's have a, a couple of first reactions. Thank you, Johanna Paul. Appreciate the, the presentation. Uh, can uh, we just make sure that the mic is, a, uh, is, is better there? Okay. Can you hear me now? Um, just, yeah, yeah, more or less. If you just Thank make sure you say who you're going to address the question to, or if it's just a general thing, go ahead. Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to address the question to both of the, the presenters, or either one of them that wants to take it. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts if we have a future case where all the information is similar as the first case study, except the cause of death was an accident, in which, let's say, the client had no fault of their own. Would, uh, what would your recommendation be if the industry turns to you for advice on what to do in this case? Would it depend on the, the public perception, the public outcry at the time? Um, 
yeah, so basically I'll, I'll keep it simple than that. If, if, if you have exactly the same form of non-disclosure from a client, and the cause of death is completely unrelated to that non-disclosure and through no fault of the client, and let's say there is huge public outcry, what, what would your recommendation be? Thank you. Uh, can I ask you to hold fire and let me just get the next question before you, you respond to that one. I think there was a question out there. Thanks, Johan and Paul. Um, thank you for the frank assessment of the case. It, it clearly was a difficult one. Um, I, I'd just like to hear your thoughts, and, and it doesn't matter who responds, um, on a different aspect of the case. I was just wondering if there's not a case to be made for a, mere, a, a more complete or even more thorough initial assessment at underwriting stage um, so that you then end up with a consumer uninformed or informed as in this case thinking he's got a contract um, and then finding out at the late stage that maybe he doesn't given the certainty and the consumerism aspects of the matter isn't there maybe a case for the industry to have a look at that okay go ahead um, I think I'll respond to the first question first because I can, I can speak for my ex-reinsurance um, ivory tower that I always lived in. So in the same situation, I would do the same thing. I would, I would recommend that the, the claim be declined. What's quite interesting, I think, if that the public in, in this situation, had, if, if the cause of non-disclosure was cancer, I don't think anyone would have, they wouldn't really have, con they wouldn't have concerned them as much. Because everyone knows that cancer is very serious and you really should know you have cancer and you should tell them. So half of the problem in this situation was that it was this diabetes or sugar um, that maybe someone didn't know that they had. But um, you know, if, if you read the paper on, on page 13, I mean, it does go into quite a lot of detail about why the actual cause of claim doesn't matter. And it's, it's quite a difficult conversation. I've had this discussion in the professional course in a nice safe space with actors who've disqualified. And, I can't get them to understand that the cause of claim doesn't matter. It's irrelevant about what, um, what the yeah. person dies from. And it's, it's technical and it's irritating, but it, it's the truth. So now the real world. Interesting, we, I mean, the question does pop up. Uh, now you're in the real world. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think we actually had an interesting debate around this a number of times. Because um, an argument was made, does every client, not in any case, pay for an accidental death benefit? You know, irrespective of you know, the, the underwriting criteria around it. So Paul probably touched on that a little bit. But funny enough, you, know, we also, you actually also, uh, under, uh, maybe start with accidental death benefits are so, of, sort of capped in South Africa. I don't know. You don't get, I don't, I'm not sure if any insurer provides 10 million accidental death as a standalone benefit out there. It's probably one, two, maybe three million, that kind of level. But you actually, and I think following Francois' presentation yesterday, there are underwriting criteria associated with accidental death also. For example, uh, mental conditions or even alcoholism could be sort of something that you need to look at. But it's this fine line between then when you get into the accident space, who caused the accident? You know, if somebody, you know, ran into you that was a drunk driver and it's not your fault, you know, how do you deal with those kind of things? So all these things come to play. So you need to be all a little bit conscious of the particulars also in every specific case. But I think it is it's fair to say that it doesn't solve the problem completely. Maybe, Etienne, if I can respond to your issue around underwriting. I think we got this quite a, uh, quite a few times from the media also, you know, at the time of the claim event. Now, there's a line between access and ease of access and actually, you know, being tight on underwriting up front. I don't know how many GPs we have in South Africa, 6,000, 7,000, maybe some of you will know. Um, we issue, I don't know, 100,000 plus, even more risk contracts every year. 
Now, can you just understand, there's no system to do that level of detailed underwriting. The process will become cumbersome. I think at the end, you need to apply your mind about what's practical and what's not. What happened elsewhere, in the worlds where there are contestability criteria, it did become an issue. So afterwards, they will go back and actually do more underwriting. And in the U.S., for example, in the first two years, if there's a, even the sort of slight, slight sort of uh, proof of misrepresentation, you repudiate the, the, the case in totality. So that's what they did elsewhere. But it does impose more cost, uh, cumbersome burden. So finding the balance between the two is quite important. And relying on clients. The specific case around blood sugar, for example, is not a test you normally go to for just as a client. You know, average Joe might go for a cholesterol test or a you know, whatever, at a pharmacy. You normally go for a blood sugar test if a medical practitioner actually send you there. So it's not something that's just, you know, there's, there's a process around that. But yes, I don't think there's always easy answers, but, you know, finding the balance is also key. There's another question. So just a short comment on Etienne's question. So it is covered in page seven of the paper. Just, <laughs> I recommend, the, the paper's very good. It's a very good paper. So I recommend that you read it. But this also comes down to the point of where do you break the camel's back? And I think this is one situation where actually we live in a, it's an uncomfortable situation, and I think yeah. maybe it's the, it's the best of a bad situation is the level of underwriting we do. Well, can I okay. slip one in? I understand the practical complications. I was more wondering if there's a case to be made in the industry, given the thoroughness of our initial assessment and the fact that there's only about 0.7% that then gets repudiated in the end if you look at the stats in the beginning. It's not a case to be made for, you know, as opposed to the buyer beware, let the issuer be there. Once you've issued it, then live with it. And if it's not the type of policy who does super or continuous underwriting, then you, you yeah. carry that risk and work it in the pricing somewhere. That's a contestability environment yeah. that I've described. Yes. Well, and to an extent, that does apply in practice. I mean, no one looks at claims after 10 years. It doesn't matter how bad the person non-disclosed. There's a, there's a period where we all agree there's this sort of hidden non-contestability anyway. Mm. Okay, I think I'll have to maybe close the questions. The, 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 I was asked to make a few comments because when I read the paper, I also made some comments. It's, it's a very emotive issue. Uh, but for me, it was to do with maybe I'd like to challenge the profession. I'm, I'm an older member of the profession, so I can leave things to the younger generation. Um, and I think for me, when I read the paper, I saw two what I call public interest issues. The first one is communication of life cover. What are people buying when they, when they buy life cover? The way I understood insurance was that I'm, I'm paying into a club. Okay, There's a club of us who represent the same risk and we pay for the cover of the club. So I'm paying into the club I'm paying for other people, and those people in the club are paying for me. Now, because of that netting, we sort of say, I'm buying life cover for myself. And I think we have a problem here because I'm actually not buying life cover for myself. To be honest, I'm buying life cover for the group, and most of my premiums actually are going to life cover for other people. So I think that maybe that's the first thing. We need to understand that when we pay into this club, we're paying for other people. So if I lie to reduce the amount that I pay into the club, I'm cheating the club. So the, the whole thing of, of solidarity and community, the community approach to insurance has been lost because we have individualized it. 
and it leads to this kind of problem. So I think there may be an issue about people understanding what they're actually buying. That's something that maybe we could think about. The second one is perhaps more um, important socially. We're talking about a relatively small proportion of people here, people who buy life cover. Now, it was actually said in paragraph two of, of page 10 and, and repeated. I had to show off there. <laughs> Life assurance is a necessary good for society. So if we believe that, then surely it's an ethical issue if the majority of people do not enjoy that good. So maybe the ethical issue that we're looking at is very narrow, and we should be looking at the broader issue that if most of society doesn't have access to life cover, or at least a small basket of maybe it's insurance cover, short-term life, to make sure that when these incidents happen, which could blow them out and keep them in perpetual poverty, that they have something. So it may not be that it's just the insurance companies, it may be a combination of the insurers with the state, but surely that's an ethical issue. So here we have this good which can stop people falling into poverty unnecessarily. What are we doing as a society? What are we doing as a profession to address this issue? So that's just a challenge uh, on the public interest uh, side. I think maybe the, the, the new incoming president yesterday, he gave a, a talk about this. But to me, those are the issues that I came away with, um, saying it's great to look at this particular case, and it does raise interesting ethical issues, but what about the vast majority of people who are actually even outside this whole thing? Have we got anything to say, anything to do, anything to be um, in their regard? So I leave that with you, and I think, unfortunately, I've run out of time, and uh, I just want to ask, appeal to you to put your hands together for a well thought through and a deeply uh, disturbing paper uh, from our two. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.